Hello and welcome to Very Excellent Habits, the podcast that helps you create little habits for a big life. I'm Carly Jacobs, writer and mostly sensible habit maker. I begin today by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which I record today and pay my respects to their elders past and present. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. So this episode has been a long, long, long time coming and it is all about hormones, not just for fertility, but for pretty much everything. So polycystic ovary syndrome, endometriosis, general thyroid issues. I just feel like women's hormones are a ridiculously overlooked segment of our overall health and they can really be the answer to a lot of different issues that you might be experiencing. I have zero experience in this. So this week I have Ebony Cremiri from Project Nutrition. She is a fertility and PCOS dietitian, and she helps women balance their hormones, not just for fertility, but for general hormone health. I'm so excited about this interview. Ebony is so smart, just so fantastic in this area. And this episode is just full of the most spectacular tips. If you are experiencing any issues with polycystic ovary syndrome, any issues with endometriosis, or if you think you might have either one of those issues, this episode is for you. Welcome, Ebony. Hello. Thank you for having me today. Oh, I'm so excited to have you here. I, uh, I, put a shout out on social media the day before we were, were recording to ask for people if they have any questions about, you know, uh, nutrition and stuff around, you know, hormones and fertility and things like that. And there was so many responses. So I think, yeah, thank you so much for lending us your expertise for the show. I am excited to dive into those questions and get some answers for your listeners. That's perfect. So I like to start each episode with a recommendation and mine this week is a little bit weird. So it's like, it's like a weird dessert, like if you're still hungry after dinner and it's just like a cubed apple with natural yogurt and just like a little squeeze of honey. And like, I can't say I invented it, but like I'm having it a few nights a week at the moment instead of like my standard dark chocolate. And it's just like really hitting the spot. And I like, it doesn't seem like a recommendation, but sometimes you just need someone to give you permission to have that weird little snack that you feel like having. So... Absolutely. And with the, with snacks after dinner, I think people really feel like they shouldn't be having something after dinner that it's somehow bad or, you know, they're derailing their day. But something that you just described sounds perfect and delicious and really nourishing as well. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes if we have, we're trying to cut down on meat just for kind of environmental reasons. And sometimes if we, we will kind of accidentally have a vegan dinner, which is great and excellent, but sometimes I'm a little bit hungry after a vegan dinner because I didn't get my meat. So I like to have a little something, something after then. Nothing wrong with that. (laughs) (laughs) What is your recommendation of the week? Well, I am personally love savory after dinner myself. I'm not so much of a sweet tooth, but I love my cheese and bickies. I cannot go past cheese, bickies, and a little bit of wine on the weekend. So for me, that's my dessert. So I love having a glass of wine, some cheese, and some bickies, watching a movie or relaxing on the weekend. And that is one of my absolute favorite little recommendations to wind down and relax after a busy week. So you definitely order the cheese plate and not the chocolate cake when you're at a fancy dinner? 100%. 100% cheese all the way. (laughs) Perfect. All right. So down to business. 
can you tell us, so I've, I've got you here to talk about uh, dietary requirements and nutrition around uh, particularly PCOS and endometriosis because those are your areas of expertise, right? Yeah, I work with a lot of people who have PCOS, endometriosis, and who are also trying to conceive. So that is definitely uh, the area that I see most of my clients. Right. Can you can you tell us your story and how you became an expert in this area? Like, what what led you into this into this zone? Yeah, I I've been a dietitian for over twelve years now, so it makes me feel a little bit old when I say that. <laughs> but um, I didn't always work in this area. So when I first started working as a dietitian, I was actually working as a clinical hospital dietitian. So uh, doing a lot of work with people who are really really unwell um, after having big surgical procedures and um, had really quite significant medical conditions and. During that time, I started going through my own struggles with infertility. So me and my husband um, unfortunately had a number of miscarriages and it took us a very long time for us to fall pregnant with my son. And being a clinical hospital dietitian, I had no idea, like I knew uh, nutrition was important for fertility, but I had no idea of uh, the specific changes that could be made to really optimize and improve your fertility. So when it came around to uh, trying to have another baby, I was just sort of in that head space where I, it took me a long time to get my head around even wanting to try for another, for another baby. And then when I, we did decide to do it, I just thought I can't go through what we went through before. I have to take a different approach, um, and see what else is out there to really support me on my journey. And when it came to that, I thought, oh, nutrition's obviously a great place to start, given that that's my area Area of expertise. expertise. (laughs) Yeah, so I thought, that's going to be an easy spot for me to start. So let's start there. And I really started looking into all the research around um, fertility nutrition and my mind was just blown. And I was like, oh, my gosh, how did I not know this beforehand? And I you know, really spent a lot of time um, understanding and going through all the research, upskilling. So I did a number of extra courses and training specifically on fertility and nutrition uh, for my own um, for my own fertility and my own journey. And then once we were sort of out the other side of all of that and we had my daughter and our family was complete, I really felt like I was in a good place to start helping other people. And I really wanted to share that knowledge and that expertise uh, with other uh, couples that were struggling with infertility. So that's how I got started with my own business. I opened my own practice for women's health and fertility. And then once I sort of started working more in that space, I started seeing a lot of people with PCOS and endometriosis who were really struggling to find good quality, reliable information. And that really inspired me to focus in on those particular health concerns and support people with those conditions. So do you have PCOS or endometriosis? No, I personally don't have either of those conditions. I was actually misdiagnosed with PCOS when uh, um, many, many years ago, and I spent a long time, you know, thinking I did have that condition, oh my God. Uh, but it was actually misdiagnosis. Um, and yeah, which 
you know, the, the struggles that I had myself with irregular periods and uh, misdiagnoses and not getting su- the support I needed from um, health professionals. I mean, I really can resonate with my clients when they come in mm. with very, very similar stories. And I really believe things are changing and there are so many amazing health practitioners out there now that are really, you know, patient centered and wanting to support their clients with what their goals are. Um, but it, it, you know, unfortunately there are a lot of stories out there where people haven't got that support. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really similar. I've got, um, like really, really heavy periods, really bad period pain, and I haven't been diagnosed with endometriosis, but I've been close to being diagnosed with PCOS before, but I, but I've, I've had all the blood tests and everything and I don't have it. I think I just have very heavy, painful periods. I know. And it's so frustrating when you can't get that sort of clarification around what's actually happening. Yeah. It, it just leaves you in this sort of limbo of, you know, well, what, what's my next step moving forward or what's the plan moving forward? And that can be so frustrating. And it makes you doubt yourself because like a, a lot of the time, I'm like, am I just a sook? Like, or like all of these, like, yeah. I know most of my friends just have periods and it's just not a big deal and they don't even think about it. Whereas, you know, people who have very painful periods, it's like, you know, I, I have to adjust the way I'm going to come at this week. Like it, this is not a, a, a simple thing for me. Like, and, and it's, and it's up and down. Like sometimes it's really bad and then other months it might just be not as terrible. And you just kind of like, I don't know. Am I just like... <laughs> coping with this as well as everyone else well I think you just sort of nailed it on the head there when you said I have to think about how I'm going to approach my week because of the symptoms that you're experiencing and that is just the perfect way to describe when something isn't normal so you shouldn't have to be adjusting what you do on your day to day if if that's sort of a normal experience so yeah that was a really good way of explaining a sign that things maybe not be may not be normal. Yeah. Well, look. Speaking of signs that things might not be normal, can you tell us what red flags there might be uh, if someone has a hormone disruption? Like, if if someone's mm. feeling a bit odd, what sort of things might like tip you off that their hormones are a bit out of whack? Yeah. And look, there are a lot, a lot of signs and symptoms, and this is most certainly not an exhaustive list, but some really common ones that I see in my practice is changes with your menstrual cycle. So your period and your menstrual cycle is a really key insight into your health. So if you're getting irregular cycles, if you're not ovulating regularly, if your periods are completely absent, so you're not getting a period at all, uh, if you're getting really heavy bleeding or really, really light bleeding, so you're, you're hardly having a bleed at all, lots and lots of pain, So pain that impacts on your quality of life and impacts on the way that you do things. These are all red flags that there could be an issue with your hormones. But I want to stress as well, they can all be issues with other things as well, not necessarily your hormones. So they could be due to a number of other factors outside of your hormones, those symptoms. So it's really important that if you do experience any changes to your menstrual cycle, that you do see your doctor so that they can do a full medical investigation of what is behind or what is the reason behind the symptoms that you're experiencing. Because we don't want to miss something like, say, a fibroid, which is a physical, mm. um, 
abnormality in your in your uterus so that could be responsible for really heavy bleeding or pain it may not be um, a hormone dysfunction as such right so how how can women tell so like just to share my little story i'm quite lucky and i i can feel i can feel myself ovulate i get ovulation pains so i know when i'm ovulating and i know that a lot of women don't know that they're not ovulating but their periods are still kind of all over the place but still regular ish um so like how can you like can you get your period and still not be ovulating yeah, you can. Yeah. So often we'll see though when someone has an we call it an N ovulatory cycle, which means you haven't ovulated that month, the bleed tends to be a little bit lighter. Mm-hmm. So it's not it's more spotting light bleeding rather than like a full flow. Uh, that is a classic sign that maybe you haven't ovulated that month. But the only way to tell whether you've ovulated or not is to track your basal body temperature or to get a blood test, a progesterone blood test through your doctor, which can tell you whether you have ovulated or not. So um, they're the two ways that we can ensure that you're ovulating and ovulating regularly. Excellent. I've actually got like on the on the topic of um, temperature, one of my friends wanted me to recommend a product. It's called um, Temp Drop. Have you heard of Temp Drop? Yeah. Yep. 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 Yeah. I have so, a few clients that use that. Yeah, because there's a whole thing around like because if you if you're trying to conceive, like this is just what my friend was telling me, you have to take your temperature like at the same time every morning and you have to be really strict about it or otherwise yep. it doesn't work. And if you've drunk alcohol the night before or you've had a late night, it can like it can just ruin your readings. So it's yep. it's such a great tool to use to track your ovulation and your fertility, but if you don't do it right, you can really mess it up. So temp yep. drop is a thing. Sorry, I'm just explaining it for the readers because I know you know. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> it's like a wearable device that you wear like on your arm and it takes your temperature at like regular intervals all through the night and then gives you a an average in the morning. And then over months, it learns more about your temperature tracking and gives you kind of like a, and it, it tells you when you've ovulated because your temperature drops when you ovulate. So rises then drops it dips and then it spikes yeah yeah so yeah that and was just so, an interesting like product that i hadn't heard anything about and one of my friends was like it's amazing you have to tell everyone about it so that's oh there's so much more convenient to use the wearable devices it charts it all for you on your app and there's a few different brands as well that you can get uh but really really accurate you know if you're busy um, I yeah. think it's worth paying the extra money for the convenience. Yeah. Um, you just put it on at night, go to sleep, don't even have to worry about it. So definitely a good option that taking it manually every morning can get a little bit tedious. <laughs> yeah. And I just like, I take my hat off to women who do that because um, like apparently there's a community of women who do it for like natural contraception. Yeah. Yep. Which sounds yep. excellent because like, it's like if you're in a committed relationship and you don't want to be on, oh, can we talk about the pill? How do you feel about the pill? Yes. So that's a good, <laughs> Long good <pause>. question. <laughs> yeah, no, with, I'm just thinking how I approach this. With the pill, I think the pill gets a real bashing online. Um, it gets a lot of negativity and sometimes I think it may be unfounded. So with a pill, like any medication, it has its pros and it has its cons. For some people, it will be a good choice. For others, it will not be a good choice. We can't make blanket statements about it saying 
everyone needs to come off the pill. It's destroying your um, health. And we can't say that everyone needs to just go on the pill. And that is something, unfortunately, I know a lot of my clients, especially with PCOS and endometriosis, they're prescribed the pill and that's where it ends. And I think that's where the pill has got such a um, bad name because no one has ever really had it explained to them, you know, what does it do? Why is it being prescribed to you? So for example, with PCOS, the pill can actually help to lower androgens. So they're those male hormones that cause symptoms like excess hair growth and hair fall um, and acne. And they're really distressing symptoms for people. And, you know, if people want to get sort of results quickly, then something like the pill might help them get that quickly whilst they work on their diet and lifestyle. But the missing piece of the puzzle is practitioners explaining that to their patients and saying, and these are our next steps after the pill. It's not something that you need to be on forever and ever. You can also do these things for your um, acne and for your hair growth and for your hair fall, but they're going to take a little bit more time. So this will get you some improvements quickly and then we can focus on other things. So I think that's where it's got a really bad name is that people have just been given it at an early age no explanation why, no plan of how long they need to be on it for, what it's doing. And, you know, when people are coming back and going, well, maybe this isn't working for me. It's not, um, you know, gelling for me. It's not making me feel good. They're not giving any other alternatives. So does that sort of clarify that? That clarifies it brilliantly because I think it's such a slippery slope when you start researching the kind of PCOS endo community and looking at um, dietetics around that and how you can change your diet. It does kind of lean more towards a kind of natural holistic approach that does Mm. automatically demonize the pill. And I I, I think that's a wonderful explanation. And also like the, the pill is fantastic, like yay contraceptives. Like I I think we need to be very we we need to be very positive about any way that women can be in charge of their own fertility and take control of their own body and protect themselves from unwanted pregnancies. Um, But yeah, and but but also really look at how like what the pill is doing to your body, whether or not it works for you, that kind of thing. Like just for a bit of an overshare for everyone, I tried going on the pill in my early twenties and it never worked for me. I tried all of them. One one made my hair go straight. Another one, my periods just disappeared completely yep. I tried all the different ones my favorite contraceptive story that I'm sure I've told before <laughs> do you know Nuva Ring yes I, yes I actually used to use that myself <laughs> well I thought that that was going to be the answer to all my problems because I was like it's it's localized it's not going all through my body and messing things up I'm like let's do it so I st- started using it and then I just started sleeping 16 hours a day and my partner was like do, do we need to talk about why you're so sleepy turns out that one percent of women get a narcoleptic effect from using it and I was one wow. of them wow yeah. See, I, di- I didn't know that about, about that, but I used it when I was a lot younger. Did you use but it for yeah, a while? Um, yeah, it would have been about a year, I would say, yeah. that, I, that I used it. But I, it just it got a bit annoying, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, this is, this is too much to remember for me to do. Yeah, it's just like, it's just like, just, just the journey of trying to find the contraception that works for you. And I ended up just giving up on hormonal contraceptives altogether. I was like, this is just not for my body. It does not work for me. And also a lot of them killed my libido completely. I was like, well, what's the point? Like if I'm, if I, if if I'm on a hormonal contraceptives, it's going to stop my desire to engage in sexual activity. That's kind of canceling it out. 
Yeah, exactly. And that is the perfect example of where it's just not working for someone and there are other options. And what you really want from your doctor is to be able to go in and explain what you just said then and then go, okay, right, these are your other options rather than going, well, that's normal or, you know, dismissing your experiences and your concerns. So I think that's a really big uh, missing piece of the puzzle. And also, I know I see people feeling quite, um, I don't know what the right word is, but if they're finding the pill is helping them, mm. they almost feel bad that they're taking it, like it's causing some sort of damage to, to them um, when they're reading all these negative messages about it. So it's just like, as I said, it's just like any other medication will not be a good fit for some people, will be a good fit for others. And you just have to do what's right for you and find a practitioner who will give you alternatives if it's not a good choice for you. And also like having problems with the pill isn't necessarily common. Like uh, amongst my friendship group, most of my friends started on like the mini pill when Mm. they were halfway through high school and just stayed on it and then had babies and everything was fine. Like there's that, that's, that's most people's experience. Like it's not, you know, I mean, most people probably not, but like, it's, it's still like there's there's a huge proportion of women that can very successfully take the pill, have no problems with it. It works perfectly, does exactly what it needs to do. So it's yeah, just, just reiterating that if you are on the pill, that's fantastic. And if it's working for you, that's great. If it's not working for you, then listen to your body, listen to what's going on and seek other information and other alternatives. Yes, get the support you deserve and a plan from your doctor that is in line with uh, your goals and how you're feeling. It's so important and you can get a second opinion. If you're not feeling heard, if you're not feeling like you're getting the answers you need, you can always ask or not even ask, you can go and seek a second opinion from somewhere or someone else. Speaking of second opinions, um, I, I would just like some more info about like if you could explain PCOS an endo and what it might mean if you have either of those conditions mm. and how you manage getting diagnosed with it. Because there's, I follow a lot of people on Instagram who are like uh, endo warriors is that, mm-hmm. that seems to be a, a, a thing. Um, not necessarily because they're endo warriors. They're just women who I've already been following and they're starting to share their story of their endometriosis, yeah. which is just unbelievable it's so great when people share this kind of thing because it's um it's just such an equalizer and you can go oh okay so you've got this thing as well um yeah so if you could just explain what they are the differences between them can you have Mm. both yeah you can definitely have both and i do see a lot of clients with both conditions and yes it is having one chronic illness is hard enough let alone having two. And it's something that I'm seeing more and more in my practice is people struggling with both of those conditions. And they are very, very different conditions. Both are chronic illnesses, which means we unfortunately don't have a cure for them at the moment. So they're conditions that um, you will have ongoing and need to be managed ongoing. With I'll start with PCOS. Um, oh, another thing with both of those conditions, they are really common. So they both affect around one in ten people, which is super super common. It's very likely that you will know someone that has one of these conditions. I know and heaps, heaps. Yes, <laughs> yeah, really really common. And also, um, often people think of them as reproductive 
issues because polycystic ovary syndrome, you know, with the name ovaries, you think it's just affecting the ovaries or the reproductive system. And endometriosis, often one of the first things that comes to people's minds are painful periods. But both of those conditions are whole body diseases. They don't just affect the reproductive system. They can affect your whole body. So I think that's a really important thing for people to realize that it's just not about your periods. It's about your your whole body and your whole health. So with PCOS, um, it is a syndrome. So a syndrome means that you need to meet a certain criteria in order to be diagnosed with that condition. And this is where things get a little bit murky and a little bit gray in terms of people getting a diagnosis around PCOS. So you need to meet two of the three criteria. So you need to either have polycystic ovaries on ultrasound and um, irregular periods or high androgens. So that's the acne, the excess hair growth and the hair fall. Hi, it's Carly just popping in to let you know that I'm definitely planning on having Ebony back on the show because she's freaking brilliant. So if you do have a question for Ebony, please leave it in review form and I will get her to cover it next time. Thank you so much. Back to the show. Um, I got um, like I've been people have tried to diagnose me with PCOS before, but I have none of those. So, yes. Yep. So you can have irregular periods and not have PCOS. You can have polycystic ovaries and not have PCOS. And that's a big one that I see. People are told they have polycystic ovaries and they don't get any other explanation and think they have PCOS. They think they have the syndrome. It's not the case. Um, With endometriosis, endometriosis occurs when um, cells that are similar to the endometrial lining grow in places other than the uterus. So that can be, you know, in a number of different places in the body. And um, those cells are inflammatory, they cause inflammation and pain. So they're the differences between the two conditions. One of the similarities between both conditions is that they affect people very, very differently. So you will have, you know, Two, diff- two different people standing in front of you with PCOS and they'll both experience it different. They'll have different symptoms, they'll have different struggles. Um, and the same goes with endometriosis. And just because you don't have severe period pain doesn't mean that you can't have endometriosis. Other symptoms like uh, fatigue is a really common one um, with endometriosis, uh, pelvic pain, constipation and gut symptoms. These are all presentations or, or symptoms of of endometriosis and we know that gut symptoms so things like bloating um, diarrhea constipation are just as common as the gynecological symptoms so the period pain um, with endometriosis so it really does look different for everyone and you don't have to have crippling um, debilitating pain to have endo yeah definitely i've got several friends that have endo and all of their experiences are completely different like there are ones that have had to have surgery ones that have struggled with fertility i have one friend who has very severe endo and was horrified about like her fertility so had babies like super early because she was really worried about it and then just had no problems with fertility and just ended up having babies a couple of years earlier than she was prepared for so it's it's um i'm just thrilled with people sharing their stories and sharing their symptoms 
and but particularly the gut stuff because it's there's there's a few like people that I follow online that share a lot of that stuff and it's like that's hard to talk about like it's hard to talk about like diarrhea and constipation and and bloating and gas and that kind of thing and I'm just I'm I'm just really grateful to because I don't even have endo but I love when people talk about the symptoms that they have from these things because it just kind of opens up the floor for other people to be like yes that's me as well and you know I'm I'm not a freak for experiencing this thing definitely and also to know that that's not a normal thing that you just have to put up with because a lot of people just go oh that's just me you know that's just the way my gut is that's just the way my periods are you know soldier on keep going but when you hear other stories and you go hang on this is this is something that a lot of people are experiencing and they're getting help and treatment for it you know maybe I should go see my doctor about that so it's just that raising awareness to really you know you know promote the different ways that these conditions can present and can affect people so let's talk about food because that is you are a dietitian that's kind yeah. of like your your main bag what, <laughs> yeah. what what kind of an effect can diet have on our hormones and on uh conditions like pcos and endo Yes. So I like to sort of see food and lifestyle can have both a direct impact on hormones. It can have an indirect impact on hormones and then in certain situations can have no impact on hormones. So it just depends on what hormones we're looking at um, as to where diet and lifestyle can fit. So I'll give you an example. With PCOS, we can have with diet and lifestyle a direct impact on the hormone insulin. So insulin resistance for PCOS is really common. So it affects up to 95% of people with PCOS and insulin resistance is a really responsible for a number of the symptoms people experience with PCOS. So weight gain, irregular periods, fatigue, pretty much the works. Insulin resistance is really simmering at the bottom of those symptoms. And insulin is a hormone and it's produced by an organ in our body called the pancreas. And its job is basically to get glucose into the cells in our body so that that our body can use that glucose for energy. So when you have insulin resistance, that insulin doesn't work properly and you get this buildup of glucose and insulin in your bloodstream, which causes all of those lovely symptoms that I just described. So we can affect how much insulin our pancreas produces when you have insulin resistance and how effectively that insulin is used with diet and lifestyle. So that's an example where we can have a direct impact on our hormones. Where we can have an indirect impact on our hormones are things like um, sleep. So if um, we are basically having poor sleep, then this can impact on things like our appetite and our hunger hormones. So we know that um, people who don't sleep well, they tend to have this dysregulation of um, hormones that tell you when you have had enough to eat and when you're hungry. So people who don't sleep well tend to have higher intakes of food the following day after a poor night's sleep. So they're two different examples, I guess, of how diet and lifestyle can impact on our hormones. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Like like back in my party days when you've had a bit too much to drink the night before and you haven't slept very well, there's definitely a lot more eating the next day than on a regular day. Definitely, definitely. And look, sleep, I think, is one of the most underrated areas that we can all work on to improve our general health, but also our hormone health as well. So 
that's one thing that you can start doing straight away is look at your sleep, look at your sleep routine and really try to improve the amount of good quality sleep that you're getting. Make a huge difference. So this is um, a teeny bit off topic from um, PCOS and endo, but can you have like pretty severe hormone disruption without it being either of those two things? Yeah, definitely. So endo isn't so much a hormone condition. PCOS definitely is. Um, But there are loads of different hormone conditions that exist. So issues with your thyroid is a really um, classic example and something that a lot of people struggle with. So having your thyroid hormones that are um, dysfunctional and look, diet can most definitely play a role in that and lifestyle, but often we do need medical help as well. And with any sort of hormone conditions, I really encourage you to get some support from an endocrinologist because they are the specialists that are experts in hormones. So they are the true hormone experts um, and they will be able to, you know, make sure that from a medical perspective, there's nothing more sinister underlying because there are some, you know, serious hormone conditions that that need um, some pretty, you know, intense medical intervention. So let's and jump diet back. lifestyle won't cut it. Yeah, medical help. Yeah, yeah, like a like a like a healthy combo of both. Yes. Um, let's jump back to fertility. Uh, is there anything that you can do? I'm particularly aiming this at like young women who are probably like a decade away from having mm. children um, and suspect or have recently been diagnosed with endo or PCOS. Is there anything they can do, kind of like in their teen years? Because it's such a hard thing to manage like contraception, safe sex, as well as having, you know, PCOS and endo at the same time, like poor darlings, I just want to give them cuddles. Uh, Is there anything that they can be doing to ensure that their future fertility is in the best case scenario that it can be? Yeah. So with PCOS, one of the best things that people can focus on, even if fertility is a million miles away, not even on their radar, is really focusing on supporting regular ovulation because that is the biggest barrier for most people with PCOS when it comes to their fertility is not ovulating regularly. Once we can get someone ovulating regularly who has PCOS, most people have no issues falling pregnant and having a healthy pregnancy. It's just getting that ovulation happening more regularly because that gives you so many more chances of falling pregnant. Um, Literally the only way. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So when it comes to, I guess, um, looking at managing your PCOS if you're not trying to conceive, if you're younger, really looking at diet and lifestyle strategies to help support ovulation. So that would be looking at managing your insulin resistance. So looking at your carbohydrate quality and quantity. So low GI carbs and eating them in amounts that are right for your needs, building well-balanced meals with enough protein and fiber and vegetables. So that helps with your blood sugar balance and helps with fatigue and helps with acne and excess hair growth, which are probably the symptoms that are going to be more concerning at that age. So the good thing is with PCOS, any dietary changes that you make to help manage your PCOS will be helping with your fertility. So you're ticking all the boxes um, with that. With endometriosis, um, 
really looking once again if you're implementing dietary strategies that are helping with lowering chronic inflammation and general healthy eating and pain management they will also indirectly be helping from a fertility perspective too because that anti-inflammatory eating pattern like the mediterranean diet uh, can be really helpful for endometriosis but there's also research to show that it can help with fertility too so you're kind of ticking to boxes with that as well. And I think as well, something that's really important to consider is just think, just thinking about your fertility because often, um, you know, people get to later stages in life and they're not aware of what happens to our fertility as we get older. Um, and that, you know, our chances of conceiving do start to decline as we get older. So, you know, when you're sort of getting to your mid twenties, having a sort of a bit of a think about, I know it's really hard at that age. And so I know hard. myself when um, <laughs> I was, you know, in uni, or that was the last thing on my mind was having a family, but, um, you know, just having a little bit of a think about potentially what might lie ahead and and start having those conversations with your doctor because things like egg freezing is something that's really common these days and it's sort of taking a proactive approach to your future fertility doesn't mean you have to go ahead and have a baby but you've got that option yeah no that's that's fantastic advice and and yeah it is it is hard because I remember people telling me when I was in my mid-20s like you know you better start thinking about it and I was like no not going to go away <laughs> I know and I think sometimes as well because we grow up well I know I did and everything you hear about pregnancy it's like it's so easy to fall pregnant like you just have to look at someone you're gonna fall pregnant so you think oh gosh this is gonna be easy once I get around to, to trying to have a baby you know it's gonna be a breeze but I think that's what shocks a lot of people that it is actually a really low chance each month of falling pregnant even if the stars are aligned and everything's perfect we only really have about a 33 percent chance if you time intercourse correct and that's the best no case other scenario issues. yeah yeah, yeah, it's so, actually shocking when you look into it. You're like, how like how do how does anyone ever get pregnant? Like the, the, the amount of things. And also, like, how does anyone ever actually give birth to a child? Like the amount oh. of things that have to line up for that to happen. Like our bodies are just I know. <laughs> yeah, I know. So I think that shocks a lot of people too when they when they start trying to fall pregnant, they're like, okay, this and they're having issues, they're like, this is a little bit more difficult than I thought it was going to be, and that can be quite then, a shock. Was particularly because you've probably spent 15 years trying to stop it from happening. Yeah. And then it's just exactly. like a major disappointment when you get to the other end and it's like, oh, okay, well, that was all for nothing, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, all the stress and the, you know, the money spent on contraception, you're like, oh. which was really important. But... Very important. <laughs> We're very pro-contraception. Yes. Um, so can we talk a little bit about menopause? Because I've got, my, my listenership is very varied. I've got like teenagers yeah. that listen and I've got like 60-year-olds that listen. That's so awesome. um, what happens to our hormones during menopause and, and how, how can we support ourselves through that change? Yeah, I think this is such a topic that we do not speak about enough. Um, it's something that we are all going to go through at some stage. Uh, so I think it's important that we're really informed about what's going to happen to our bodies or what's happening to our bodies during this period of time. And, and if we can do anything like now to be preventative for that time. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Exactly. And that is probably the best way to approach menopause is putting things into place before you get into the thick of it. Because once again, menopause affects everyone so different. Some people haven't, you know, 
go through menopause, no, no issues. Other people have a really, really tough time during that phase. So with perimenopause, it can start, you can start going through perimenopause in your thirties. Um, most people will start going through perimenopause in their forties. So symptoms to look out for are things like um, hot flushes, changes to your period. So if you notice any changes to your cycles around this time, that could be an indicator that hormones are starting to change. And we do see sort of more fluctuations in hormones with perimenopause. So these dips and highs and lows and with that trend of declining downwards, especially with estrogen. So things like vaginal dryness or discomfort um, during intercourse or another uh, sign that maybe estrogen is, um, you know, declining or waning. Uh, so yeah, there's some of the key things to look out for during that period. From a nutrition perspective, there are a couple of things that we can really start to do to support ourselves during that phase. And we know that once we hit about 30, we start to lose more muscle and our body composition starts to change. And I know this is one of the biggest struggles and complaints that clients come to see me about, especially when they are going through menopause, is the change in their body. So we tend to see less muscle mass, more body fat, especially around the midsection. And this starts, as I said, happening from about the age of 30. We start seeing this change. So what we can do to sort of counteract that is to really focus on physical activity that helps to keep us strong. So building muscle, and that's so important for our bone health and also our flex, um, our stability as well, which is all important as we get older, and also making sure we're getting enough protein. So eating protein and making sure that protein isn't all lumped at one meal, that we're spreading that out across the day. And I mean, you don't need to be eating like slabs of meat or like huge amounts. So it's quite easy to achieve the amount of protein intake that we need. But what I often see in my practice is people will tend to have it all the bulk of their protein at once at one meal. Um, very little protein, say in the morning, um, morning tea, breakfast and lunch and a huge amount of protein at dinner. So really spreading that out more across the day is better to help us build muscle and, and keep our muscle mass nice and healthy. Perfect. That's wonderful advice. I've had so many yeah. people asking about menopause and just having like a, like a practical response of things we can be doing at this age, kind of in our thirties. If, if you happen to be in your thirties and you're listening, um, I will definitely be focused because I, I don't have any problems with protein, but I'm like, do I have it all throughout the day? Like what, what type of foods are high in protein? Yeah. Um, so foods that are high in protein are your animal protein. So they're things like your fish and your chicken and your red meats eggs are a good source of of protein and then you've got your plant-based protein so nuts and seeds nut butters legumes lentils chickpeas tofu edamame beans they're all really good sources of protein we also forget to mention or often talk about how things like whole grains are often a really good source of protein too and they get demonized so much but they, I'm a huge fan of whole grains for a number of different reasons, but they're another good source of protein too. So um, the goal is, and this is really helpful for someone who has PCOS too, because it helps to stabilize your blood sugar levels and keep you feeling full, is to spread that protein out across the day. So you're not just having it all at once. 
Perfect. So uh, you've answered all of my questions, but I <laughs> asked uh, if any of my listeners had some questions. And I was saying before we recorded that um, I was actually really sad when all of these people were asking these questions because I'm like, no, no one's listening to you. Like, and, and people, people were saying that they've been to doctors and the doctors haven't been able to sort this out. So, and I know that you're not a medical, like you're not a, a doctor, but um, yeah, if there's, even if you can give some advice on where people can get the correct advice would be yes. excellent. So first up, feel free to answer these as quickly as you like. Uh, Ellie asks, will my postpartum hair loss ever recover? Oh gosh, postpartum <laughs> hair loss. Oh, isn't it a wonderful thing? <laughs> yeah, it's so really common postpartum hair loss and yes, it can recover. So there are a couple of things from, uh, I'm just purely talking from a nutrition perspective here that I look for, for my clients that have any sort of hair loss. So, um, hormone issues definitely can cause hair loss. So as I mentioned before, those high androgens. So if you have PCOS, high testosterone can cause hair loss, iron deficiency can cause hair loss, a really common one, especially for postpartum mums, because we often see iron levels plummet in that third trimester, and then baby comes along and going to get your iron levels tested is literally on the bottom of your to-do list. Like it's the last thing on your mind when you're in the thick of newborn life. So it seems like an I'm indulgence. All... Oh, I know. That's like time out going to the doctors to get a Yeah, might as well test. go get a haircut. Yeah. So I look, I really focus with my clients um, in their third trimester, optimizing their iron levels so that they can go into that um, postpartum period, really confident that their iron levels are normalized because also iron's going to exacerbate fatigue and you're going to be tired enough during that time. You don't want anything that's going to make you more tired. And then the other thing that is often a, a common cause of hair fall is thyroid issues. So your thyroid can do all sorts of weird and wonderful things during pregnancy and breastfeeding. So that's a really important one to go to your doctor and get checked as well. Perfect. Uh, Lauren would like to know about metabolism and increasing it with menopause because it does tend to slow down. Absolutely. So we do know um, from studies that your metabolic rate does drop quite considerably with menopause which is a really frustrating thing for a lot of people because that's why we see that often see that weight gain because, um, you know, you're burning less calories. And one of the reasons for this is what I described before is that you start to lose that muscle mass. So if you can build your muscle mass, that can be one effective way to preserve your metabolism going into menopause. So working on that from your thirties is a really good preventative um, way of minimizing that drop in your metabolic rate. The other thing is really being conscious of your movement. So we tend to move less as we get older. So just making sure you're getting that incidental, you know, moving every day, especially if you're sitting a lot for your job um, and then taking a look at your diet because we can't avoid that drop in metabolism completely. So sometimes we just need to be a little bit more mindful of what we're eating and see if there's some swaps, easy swaps that we can make to make sure that you're not getting too many calories for your needs. Bearing in mind as well, we don't want to be dieting forever and ever and ever. So it's got to be really like a balance and um, sustainable and easy and achievable for you as well. Oh, I'd love that answer. I'm, I'm feeling yeah. so, so empowered in my thirties <laughs> to be able to help prevent that. Um, Ashley would love to know why you think her ovulation pain is worse than her period pain, or if there's any reason why that might be. Yeah. So the first thing that springs to mind and look, 
definitely worthwhile seeing your doctor about this one is that is quite a common symptom of endometriosis and with um, endometriosis you can not get any period pain at all but have quite severe ovulation pain so just look at other things like your digestion especially around the time of ovulation what's going on there does it change does it get worse do you get bloating um, write down all of the things that you're experiencing at that time as well and take that into your doctor and they might be able to help um, investigate that a little bit further for you but ovulation pain is very very common with endometriosis in the absence of period pain as well so you don't yeah. have to have both yeah uh, we've got uh, Ash. Oh, sorry. Secret wants to know: Can you get hormones tested and get proper results when you have an IUD? Yeah, so definitely one that you would go and talk to your doctor about. But um, in terms of hormone testing with an IUD, I guess it would depend what hormones you are wanting to get tested. Like there are so many hormones that you can get tested. And I think this is where people get a little bit confused about hormone health. We often just automatically think of reproductive hormones, but we've got mm. digestive hormones, we've got um, our sleep hormones. So it, it just depends on what you're wanting to get tested. And I think the best way to approach it is to go in with the symptoms that you're experiencing um, if that's why you're wanting to get your hormones tested, so it's hard because I'm just assuming here that you want yeah. to get your hormones tested because of symptoms that you're experiencing. And I believe that if we go in with that information to our doctors, we're probably going to um, get a more comprehensive assessment of what's going on. Yeah, but, but an IUD, will that affect your results? For reproductive hormones? for any kind of hormone testing? I'm not sure across all the hormones. Yeah. I I couldn't say for, for certain. Yeah, because like IUDs yeah. aren't always hormonal, are they? Yeah, there are lots of different um, contraceptive yeah. methods, yeah, and they will have different impacts on tests that you have done. But your doctor will absolutely be able to tell you what tests are okay for you to have on different um contraception methods that you're on and they if they need to do certain tests that aren't appropriate for a medication that you're on or if you have an IUD or using any other sort of contraception they will make sure that you're off that before you get the test done right okay so that's de definitely a conversation to have with your doctor on that one because there are so many different scenarios yeah. <laughs> and circumstances. Definitely. Um, Karen asks, is there a link between dairy and hormone, uh, uh, dairy and hormone or period issues like heavy periods slash clots? Oh yes. That's a good question. Cause there's a lot of misinformation around dairy and hormone health. And I can't tell you how many times I see pop up on socials, on Instagram, Google, cut out dairy if you've got PCOS, endometriosis, fertility, pretty much all three, I just constantly see cut out dairy. So with PCOS, there's no evidence to show that dairy um, can worsen your PCOS. There is no evidence to show that dairy is inflammatory. So there was a really big review of all of the different studies around dairy and inflammation, and it showed that dairy actually has a mild anti-inflammatory effect and this isn't surprising um, especially when we're looking at fermented dairy because they're full of beneficial bacteria they're great for our gut health and we know that low, uh, improving our gut health can lower inflammation 
So dairy I see is pretty neutral. It's not really going to do any harm. Um, in certain circumstances, it can be helpful. Uh, if, you, if you're choosing fermented dairy, that's really good. So try to choose your Greek yogurts, your kefir, um, uh, your, um, yeah, any of your fermented dairy products, go for those wherever you can. With um, PCOS, there is a really small amount of research. It's not great quality, though, that it may worsen acne. Ah. But that's mainly for cow's milk and skim milk, so not full-fat milk, cheese, or fermented dairy, just skim milk. So be really cautious around that. Do that, do that under the guidance of a health professional. Um, and for endometriosis, same thing. It's not an inflammatory issue. However, a lot of people with endometriosis also have gut issues, have IBS. Um. And the... The lactose in dairy 100% will trigger symptoms and that can worsen pain, that can worsen bloating, diarrhea, the work. So not uncommon in endometriosis to have lactose intolerance as well. And that's where it gets a bit of a, um, right. a bad rap. So I, but not for everyone. I'm a bit of a misinformation spreader there because I've, I've it, it, um, experimented with giving up dairy because I have very bad period pain. And I yeah. swear to God, when I give up dairy in the second half of my cycle leading up to my period, my period pain is not as bad. Yeah, look, and this is something I always say test, to clients. Test, case, test case of one, and I'm, I'm not like, please give up dairy. I hate giving up dairy. I love it. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. But if I cut back, it always makes a big difference. Yeah, and that's and I've had clients come to me saying, look, I have cut dairy out and I feel so much better. Awesome. I'm not going to force you to start having dairy yeah. again. Um, what we'll do is we'll make sure that you're not deficient in calcium. Yeah. You know, you're yeah. getting your calcium from somewhere else. So it's not something that you must include, but we need to be really cautious if you do remove it from your diet because it makes you feel better. And that's totally okay that we're getting those nutrients from somewhere else. So you're not because calcium deficiency is something that I see all the time in my clinic. And a little point on period pain, um, calcium has probably the most research out of all of the nutrients to help reduce period pain. So you do not want to be deficient in calcium. If you um, are getting period pain, you want to be getting it from somewhere else, um, whether that is fortified foods or non-dairy sources of calcium or supplements if needed. Yeah, it's interesting because like I, it's it's really good to hear the science behind it because I've experimented. It seems to be yogurt's my problem. I can have cheese and milk in kind of small amounts, but if I have like a general amounts of yogurt, that seems to make a difference, which is just really weird. It's very odd, um, and I'm yeah. not like asking anyone to give up dairy because I I don't want to. Like when I was pregnant um, with with Harriet, I was just like, I ate all the yogurt. Cause I was like, this is fantastic. I don't have to yeah. worry about period pain for nine months. And, and that's something that, you know, everyone's different. You might be able to have a small amount and feel okay. Some people might, you know, not be able to have any at all. So don't force yourself to have it if it makes you feel unwell. Uh, so we've got Holly. I'll make this the last one because the, yeah, there's just okay. so many, like so I, many, I got yeah. unbelievable. Oh, actually there's two more. Cause another one that's really interesting. So yeah. Holly yeah. says doctors say that her thyroid is normal, but she's been to several naturopaths who say it's underactive. How, how like who, who do you trust? Like if you, if you keep going to doctors and they keep going, everything's fine. Should you go down the naturopath path? Like what, how, how do you get the, the, uh, the best information about your body? Oh, yes, that's such a tricky one, isn't it? And it's hard for me to make a comment without seeing the numbers because there are um, 
medical guidelines that sort of give you the references that are um, considered to be within range. And look, they're based off robust scientific research. The thing is, um, and as I said, there's different tests that you can have done for your thyroid as well. And I don't know what this person has had tested or what ranges it's in. But if you're feeling like you have symptoms that are due to your thyroid, so things like fatigue or difficulties gaining weight, uh, difficulties with weight loss or gaining weight, um, and you're going to your doctor and you're like, I need help, I need help, there's something that's not right here, and you keep getting everything's fine, then that is a really big sign that you you need better support because those symptoms are still there for you. They're, they're still very real. It's not so much about those numbers on the panel. It's about what you're experiencing and you need help with that and feeling better and getting help with those symptoms. And whether that is through, you know, seeing a naturopath, seeing a dietitian, seeing someone for your exercise or your mental health, a lot of the time mental health is something we just forget to address and it is often at the root of a lot of issues like fatigue and weight um, gain and difficulties losing weight so yeah it just sounds like need better medical support so finding a doctor that is really listening to the symptoms that you're having and going well okay the thyroid studies are coming back within range what else is happening here what else Mm. can we look at that is potentially causing these symptoms but you should never feel sort of ashamed for trying to get support from other health professionals as well. I love that advice because we're I'm yeah. very, very, very pro science on this podcast, but also very pro get the help that you need and do no harm, basically. Yes. And I always find one of the best approaches is usually a combination combo because you get the best of both worlds. Um, and with the support that you get from other health professionals, whether it's a psychologist or a dietitian or a naturopath, different things will work at different points of your life as well and will be important to you at different points. So don't feel like you always have to have a naturopath on your team or you always have to have a dietitian. It may change and that's okay. And you can go between practitioners to who you need at that point in time. That's, that's really excellent advice. Thank you. I hope um, Holly got a lot out of that. Uh, I've got two more questions for you. I've got, uh, Becca wants to know if pregnancy can affect libido and permanently lower it. Definitely can affect libido 100%. So it can go either way. You can get really increased libido. You can get a real decline in libido for a number of reasons, including changes in hormones, but also things like body image and like they all come into play, lack of sleep, pain, just getting used to that being pregnant as well. Um, So all of those things can impact on your libido absolutely during pregnancy. Breastfeeding as well, that period because of the hormone changes, once again, that whole phase of having a baby and even right up until they're older can Mm. impact on your libido stress lack of sleep the works also just Um, not wanting to be touched as well was another thing i had i was like i have had a child on me for 14 hours today just just no one touch me like just leave me alone i know i know it's like it's a tough time for relationships that early early phases of um being a mum 
Um, but it definitely, your libido can definitely return from that. So it's not a permanent, you know, this is life now. Um, and there are things that you can do to help support your libido as well. So really looking at, you know, what are those factors that are potentially impacting on your libido? And then you can start putting strategies in place. And a really great um, health professional to look into is a sexologist. So they are a great resource that I think you know are really underutilized but they can work with you and your partner to give you like tools and strategies to help you connect in a way that you're comfortable with at that point in time so if you want to sort of proactively look at some strategies that would be a really great person to to link in with as well that's excellent advice i didn't even really know that sexologists were a thing so yeah, i write it <laughs> I did a live with a sexologist a, a couple of months ago and she was amazing. So, um, so many good tips and advice. And yeah, I just think they're an underutilized resource. So look into a sexologist. That's perfect advice. Thank you. And last question, uh, we have Steph would like tips for resetting hormones after you've been on the pill. Yep. Okay. So you're, for most people, their hormones will normalize after coming off the pill. Um, and what I mean by normalize is people will tend to have a regular period, usually takes around six months for some people for that to come back. There are things that we can certainly do to help support that for that happening. So I'll often work with a lot of clients who are planning on transitioning off the pill, especially if they have PCOS, because as I mentioned before, the pill does a great job at lowering those androgens. So when people come off the pill who have PCOS, and even for people who don't have PCOS, we can often see a real flare up in acne and excess hair growth and, and those really physical symptoms. So we can put strategies in place before you come off the pill to um, reduce the, the likelihood of that happening or the severity of, of that flare up. Um, really making sure that we're getting um, a wide range of B group vitamins, vitamin C, zinc, because the pill potentially can deplete levels of those, especially if you've been on them for a long time. But that's really easily corrected with a well-balanced diet and a really good quality um, vitamin plan if you need it. So obviously we want to go diet first where we can. Um, so these are all really simple things that you can do um, coming off the pill. And um, then just monitoring what happens with your cycle. If you sort of get to that six month period and your cycle hasn't returned, you need to go back to your doctor because something else is going on. And that's where they would be looking at um, different hormone testing to see what's happening with your reproductive hormones. Yeah, particularly if you're coming off the pill, presumably because you're trying to have a baby. Yes, yes, definitely. Definitely we need that regular cycle to give you the very best chances of conceiving. Perfect. Oh, thank you so much. That totally wraps it up. This episode has been incredible. I'm so excited for everyone to listen to it next week. I'm going to bump it up in the queue because I'm too excited. Oh, I'm going <laughs> to publish I'm it next week. <laughs> I really hope it's helpful for people. And I, I know people often have a lot of questions about this topic and what they can do. So I hope that gives people a few ideas and um, places to go to for some extra support. I tell you what, I reckon I'm going to have to get you back on the show because I suspect I'm going to have a lot more questions after this yeah. episode airs. <laughs> yeah, I would love to come back on. And, you know, I love doing Q&As for that very reason, just to, you know, give people ideas about what they can do because often people feel really stuck about where to next to help them to feel better. So, yes, anything I can do to help there, I would be more than happy to. Thank you so much, Ebony. No worries. 
That's it for this week. Thank you for listening to Very Excellent Habits, the podcast that helps you create little habits for a big life. I'm Carly Jacobs. You can find me on Instagram at Very Excellent Habits. You can also email me, contact at carlyjacobs.com. You can also record a question for me to answer on the show at speakpipe.com forward slash Very Excellent Habits. For all the resources that you hear about on the show, you can grab them at patreon.com forward slash Very Excellent Habits. And one more thing, please leave a rating and a review. It is the best way to help other people find the podcast. My Apple Podcast app hasn't updated in like three weeks, so I have no new reviews to read this week, but hopefully next week. Until next time, remember, little habits, big life.